I think of the old fashioned as a martini on the school night. Do you think we've reached peak gin saturation? Uh, a cocktail is like a drumbeat, you know? Hi, I'm Samantha Teague and welcome to Gourmet Traveller's Set Menu. Today on the show, Harriet Lee, the head of hospitality at Archie Rose, is going to try pretty hard to convert you into a gin drinker. Craft gins are big right now. Harriet tells us which ones are worth your money and why you should be using them to mix a gin old-fashioned. My name's Harriet Lee. I'm the head of hospitality for Archie Rose. Can you tell me a bit about Archie Rose? So we are a uh, distillery in Rosebury. We produce gin, vodka, and soon-to-be-released whiskey. Ooh, that's mm. very exciting. When are you releasing this whiskey? Watch this space. We don't know. Uh, no, we, we've made quite a bit. Uh, we've made a thousand casks of whiskey, but we are waiting until we've got enough to sell. So it'll probably be this time next year or a little bit later next year. And what makes Archie Rose's gin different from other gins? Mm. Well, we've made five gins so far, but uh, our core range gins, the Signature Dry, is uh, full of Australian botanicals and the distiller strength is a little bit more of the gin we wanted to drink. So it's a higher ABV, it's uh, a little bit stronger, and it's also got uh, a lot of juniper. Like we love juniper forward gins. We also distilled some honey from our rooftop and uh, some pear, elderflower, and rose, which are the sort of key botanicals. But then we've just released this range of limited edition gins called Horosumi X. Uh, season so this one that just came out in spring came out last Friday uh, and that one they're all Japanese inspired gins that paired with labels drawn by a Japanese style tattoo artist. Oh, awesome did I hear you mention that the gins made with honey from your roof? Yes so there's a company called uh, Urban Beehives and they had some beehives on our roof and we distilled the honey from those rooftops. We actually tried all of their different honeys and our favorite one to distill was the one from the rooftop. That was not a marketing thing. That was genuine, we tried all of their honeys and the one from our roof is the one we preferred. That's really And actually honey distillate, I would just drink that on its own. And I did try to persuade my boss to release it as a product, but we haven't got enough. That's it's delicious. Really, that's drink really distilled true. honey if you ever get the chance. And when did your love affair with gin begin? Mm. I was four when my mum started to get me to bartend for her parties. So I was four when I first made a gin and tonic. I know it sounds uh, like it's not feasible, but it is actually true. And my parents definitely belong to the uh, class of people or group of people who think you should let your kids drink. And if you let your kids drink a little bit with a toast with a wedding or a party or something, they won't get their stomach pumped when they're 15, which is actually something I did, like, I did not do. I went out, um, I went to a friend's house. There were four of us there, we were 13 or 14, and uh, their mum and dad were away and they had a babysitter and someone brought out a litre bottle of cooking sherry. And uh, one of the girls there drank half of the litre of cooking sherry. The other two girls shared the other half of the litre and I refused to drink it. And at three o'clock in the morning when we were at the hospital, getting <laughs> the girl who drank the litre, getting her stomach pumped, all the parents came in and they're like, can't believe you've all been drinking. And they said, well, this girl hasn't. And my parents were like, yes, that's our daughter. Of course, we're not surprised. And when we left, my dad was like, why didn't you drink with the other girls? I was like, they were drinking cooking sherry. My dad was like, see, I told you, this is why you let your children drink. That is a really great story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thoroughly, I've, I mean, you know, in France, they give kids Van Ordinaire, which is half wine, half water. And they let their kids drink a little bit of, of Van Ordinaire at dinner. And I think that, 
countries that respect alcohol and have a culture of it not being a weird thing to abuse when you hit you know come of age is actually a really healthy thing because it means kids don't think it's this taboo thing they don't get wasted they don't think it's something to go crazy with when they hit 18 so I, I thoroughly respect that I totally agree my father used to give me Kahlua and milk ah oh, see better than real milk <laughs> he was like go to sleep now yeah I mean my dad used to dip his thumb in brandy and dip it in my mouth when I was like a little baby like you know four or five months old and stop me crying and I think you know, a small amount of alcohol is okay for kids I didn't say that <laughs> gin seems to having a bit of having a bit of a moment in yeah. Australia there's endless number of boutique gins do you think we've reached peak gin saturation no I think when you go to I'm not going to name names. When you go to the big bars where, you know, 500 people drink at a time and the number one drink isn't a vodka lime and soda, then you're going to have hit peak gin. Um, there are so many bars that still have vodka lime and soda as their number one drink. When that is overtaken by something that has some flavour to it, uh, I'm not insulting vodka. I mean, we make a lovely vodka, but uh, I'm not insulting it at all. But I think that um, once it's no longer the easiest drink for young people to drink, it's going to have reached peak gin. And I think gin is the best entry-level drink you know it's such an approachable spirit it's not hard you drink it with a mixer with tonic or with soda whereas with whiskey you know you're, you're approaching something that's neat whereas with vodka and soda you're basically looking for something that has no flavor so I think when bars start uh, having things with flavor as their number one drink then I think you're going to reach peach and um, and what are some of the main Australian botanicals that we do use in Australian oh, gins wow, so many great ones um, so lemon myrtle is probably the most prolific and one of the cool things about lemon myrtle is depending on who you talk to it, it's somewhere between five and, and ten times more lemony than lemons and that's because it's an active ingredient called citral citral is more uh, condensed or more uh, intensive in lemon myrtle than lemons so it means it's five times more lemony than lemons but if you look at it from a business point of view it means it's more financially efficient to use it than it is to use lemons if you want to get a citric note so that's a great one. There's also in Australian botanicals, lots of great spices and really intense flavors like pepperberry, for example, or pepper leaf. That's really intense in Australian botanicals. Uh, and I think also we're at the tip of the iceberg and just in terms of learning about what we have that we can access in enough quantities to use in an industrial level. We're just really at the start of that journey. I think it's exciting. I mean, you can talk about people like Kylie Kwong, who've been at the forefront of that. But I think in terms of small, independent users, we're just starting to start that, that journey. You're listening to Gourmet Traveller's Set Menu. And you're here to state the case for the gin old-fashioned. I am. Amongst many other <laughs> things. But before that, can you explain what an old-fashioned is? Yes. Okay. So when cocktails started to become fancy drinks, which isn't just my nickname for it, it's actually a terminology of, of start of cocktail, which is sort of mid to late 1800s. Um, and mixology, as it was then known, like it's not a modern phrase, mixology, but cocktails started to become fancy. Uh, old school guys, usually guys, in a lot of cases women weren't allowed in bars. Certainly in Australia they were not allowed in bars. Uh, people would ask for old-fashioned drinks. And what that meant was from the big uh, hunk of ice that you had imported to your area, crack off a bit, pour a couple of fingers of, of local hooch on top, add some sugar to temper the strength of the alcohol, and a little bit of bitters to give some backbone, and then serve it. Maybe if you had access to citrus, you'd use citrus, but in a lot of cases you didn't have access to it. So the old-fashioned is just like, don't mess with my drink, 
give me the booze that's intended to be drunk, maybe a little bit of sugar and bitters, and then serve it. And so when things got really uh, too fancy, as I think you can go into a lot of bars today and see, uh, people had a backlash, and that backlash was the old-fashioned cocktail. Oh, interesting. And why, why is it that the old-fashioned these days is predominantly made with things like whiskey and bourbon? Because the old-fashioned is an American drink, uh, and you know America is the home of the cocktail. You, English people and American people will fight forever about what is the true home of the cocktail. Um, but I think America has had more influence on spreading the word of the cocktail than anyone else, and arguably possibly invented it, probably did, but possibly did. I don't want to get too political. Uh, American whiskey is a great spirit to be served in an old-fashioned style because it has a lot of heat, which means stirring it down does it a lot of favours. Uh, sweetening it up does it a lot of favours and giving it some bitters works with it. So gin is quite a difficult ingredient to use in an old-fashioned style drink, but I think, and I will argue in this interview, that uh, gin benefits the most from being served in an old-fashioned style. Cool, well, that was my next question. What, wh- why the gin old-fashioned? Okay. Why the gin old-fashioned? Thank you so much for asking. Uh, I think it is the gin, uh, the drink, sorry, of uh, 2018. Uh, my reason for why gin is better served old fashioned than any other spirit is gin has more nuance than any other spirit, in particular Australian gin. So if we are at the sort of birth of an industry, which we definitely are right now, like Australian spirits are really in their infancy in terms of international acclaim, much like wine was in the 80s. Uh, we are watching sort of the resurgence of an industry because People have been distilling in Australia since First Fleet. And I want to make sure everyone knows that. Like, that is definitely part of our history. But Australian gin has so much nuance because of our botanicals, because of the way we are disciplined. We work really hard in all industries. We make great spirits. And our spirits have a lot of variation, a lot of nuance. And so the, the ethos of the old-fashioned is celebrate the very heart of the spirit and our gin has so much going on so many high notes like i always say to my staff uh, a cocktail is like a drum beat you know you've got your bass beats going on and you've got your hi-hats going on and that's your floral notes that's your high notes of a spirit and gin has more high notes than any other spirit category that sounds amazing i want to have a gin old-fashioned now well you should you should go out and in fact i think bartenders if you went up to a great no in a good bar where they know what an old-fashioned is firstly and said, say to them, I want a great gin old-fashioned. They'll raise their eyebrows at you and I'll lean back a bit and they'll go, cool, well, what gins do you like? And they'll start talking through their gins and then they'll talk through their bitters and then their garnishes and they'll create something that is just made for you right there and then, and it doesn't exist in a bottle format. There's another bar you can go and have the same old-fashioned, which is why the gin old-fashioned is unique to you, your bartender and that moment in time right there. To expand on that, you mentioned um, bitters and garnishes. Mm-hmm. When you have a gin old-fashioned, what bitters, what garnish and what gin do you use? Well, I'm not going to stick to my brand because that would be super rude, even though Archie Rose makes the best gin around. Uh, <laughs> there are so many great Australian gins. And if I had to talk beyond brand, um, I'm a big fan of Poltergeist. They make amazing, beautiful gin. There's also a new punk distillery in Adelaide called the Never Never Distilling Company that only started producing a couple of weeks ago. Those guys make some killer gins. Uh, There's also a gin company over in WA called the Giniversity that I just tried like two weeks ago. Their gin is beautiful. It's just come out. Um, And I think, you know, so a couple of years ago, we had maybe uh, 50 distilleries registered in Australia. We now have 110 in two and a half, three wow. years. 
and there's 80 of those have already got to market. So of 110, we've got 80 at market, we've got another 30 about to hit us. I know that there are dozens more coming beyond them. Australian spirits are literally this wave that's about to hit you. And I really hope that Australian drinkers are certainly the first in the world to support and, and nurture this industry because it's really worth nurturing, you know. Thanks for coming into Gourmet Traveller, Harriet. It's been great and I've learned a lot about <laughs> gin. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to our Gin podcast. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, pick up the latest issue for our Gin cocktail special or visit our website for a hit of Gourmet Traveller. And make sure you subscribe so you'll know when the next episode drops. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.